focus shifting from going after um, military theft or theft of technologies that, technologies that are dual use to technologies that are really, you know, really kind of more benign. But still, the argument is that um, stealing these technologies is a national security threat. And that is what um, DOJ and the FBI have argued for a number of years. And since the Trump administration um, and DOJ launched the China initiative, that focus has only intensified. Episode 317 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we express here today do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients. Uh, uh, frankly, the family members who have to listen to us uh, have already, at least in my case, uh, registered their dissent. Uh, uh, so today we'll be interviewing uh, Mara Vistendahl, uh, who is an journalist and author of a new book on uh, um, Chinese espionage and the FBI campaign against it called The Scientist and the Spy, a true story of China, the FBI, and industrial espionage. Uh, uh, but first, we'll do the news roundup with Matthew Hyman, who's a senior fellow at the National Security Institute, formerly with uh, Justice Department. Gus Hurwitz, back uh, from a long vacation, uh, associate professor of law and co-director of the Space Cyber and Telecom Program at the University of Nebraska, and Nick Weaver, senior researcher and lecturer in computer science at UC Berkeley. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, uh, and the host and chief provocateur on today's program. Uh, why don't we jump in? Uh, I uh, this is a I, I have a theory about what's going on, and I wanted to check it out. This is uh, a, res a a discussion of the. Corellium lawsuit that Apple has brought, uh, which um, is a DMCA case. And you might think, well, okay, either DMCA cases are a dime a dozen. Uh, uh, why is this interesting? My theory is that this is Apple opening up a new front against the FBI. Corellium makes a emulator of the iPhone and it allows you to do cybersecurity research, including vulnerability analysis of iPhones without actually having to buy them and sign up to the license that says you won't do that. Um, a, and uh, uh, it allows you to make a lot of clones and run a lot of tests against the, uh, uh, the phone. Apple has sued Corellium after trying to buy them uh, and uh, said, uh, what you're doing is a violation of the DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, because you're um, breaking our security in order to get at our copyrighted uh, product. Um, and, and so uh, my theory is that they do not like people finding security holes in their product for the government as well as for uh, less appetizing purposes. And uh, they are trying to establish that anything that helps the government find these holes is probably a violation of the DMCA, and they can just sue people out of business if they help the FBI. So that's my conspiracy theory for the uh, program, or at least for the next uh, 10 minutes. Uh, uh, Gus, um, uh, how plausible is that theory? 
So my, my thinking about this case is a little different, but it's uh, a similarly uh, a puzzle. I, I think as a conspiracy theory goes, what you're saying uh, uh, certainly has traction. Um, that could absolutely be Apple's uh, intent here, what they're trying to do. But the fascinating thing to me is Apple is uh, really relying on copyright law in a way that a lot of the uh, copyright reform advocates, that is uh, the legal academy, uh, really are, are opposed to. So uh, there are challenging echoes uh, of the uh, Google v. Oracle, the Oracle v. Uh, Google uh, uh, litigation that's uh, uh, wending its way uh, to and through the Supreme Court right now. Uh, Section 1201 is the uh, real basis uh, here. Uh, and uh, the uh, Copyright uh, Academy has long been strongly opposed to overuse and abuse of uh, technical protection measures to uh, uh, secure copyrighted content. And that same community has historically very much been on Apple's side in a lot of the national security encryption uh, uh, exceptional access discussions. So by relying- So the theory, the, 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 let me just it, it, try to get to their legal theory or the legal dis dispute. One of the disputes is Corellium says, we are not making uh, iPhones and we are not producing the uh, capabilities that the iPhone has so that people can use it to, to do what you do with an iPhone. This is- Fair use. We have not copied your copyrighted code. We have um, found ways to achieve the same um, functionality without copying your code. Um, a, and uh, no one will buy our product in place of a uh, iPhone. And therefore, it's fair use. We've transformed it, which is all plausible. And Apple has said. <laughs> Fair use, that's not a defense against the DMCA. You're still liable to us. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. It's uh, uh, cracking the or bypassing the technological protection measures that are protected by the DMCA. And there are also echoes of uh, Google copying the Oracle API, the Java API in the Google v. Oracle case. So th this really, I think, pits Apple in a uncomfortable position against uh, the long-held views of a lot of its long-held defenders in uh, the uh, law and technology community. So that, that's, that's the fascinating part of this case to me. Yeah. So I, the, 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 the other reason I have this conspiracy theory is that uh, um, if they can establish that Corellium is trafficking in tools, then the people who buy Corellium's products are probably also trafficking in those tools. Uh, uh, and that means they can sue everybody who is actually breaking Apple's iOS security for the FBI. And indeed, they, they filed two subpoenas, uh, and one of them is against a company that appears to be in exactly that business. They have never gotten in trouble because they only work for the Five Eyes, but they, uh, uh, they're they a very well-regarded uh, uh, pen tester of mobile phones. Uh, and uh, Apple uh, has subpoenaed them to find out what they've been doing with Corellium, which is I, I, you know, I shot across the bow that maybe those guys are next on the list of trafficking uh, defendants. Nick, Nick uh, your thoughts on this? Uh, I hate it when your conspiracies make sense um, because it really does seem like Apple is really reaching on the DMCA claim. And that's what it comes down to is Corellium is that 
we don't provide Apple code and the use by our customers is within fair use. And since DMCA is protected under this title, they argue that fair use should allow it to be used in this way. And Apple is, this is the classic anti-circumvention suits, which um, have happened again and again, and is why so many academics hate the DMCA. Um, and so it's, it's a really unusual position for Apple to be in, and I expect this will end up being a exhibit in the Library of Congress's occasional relook at the anti-circumvention provisions, because the anti-circumvention positions are loathed by everybody but um, a few incumbents. Yeah, and mainly Hollywood. It's it's only recently that uh, uh, some of the big tech companies have been using this. Uh, uh, yeah, Corellium. It's a startup, so I, you know, I have worked for startups a lot, and uh, I can tell you uh, this is a multi-million-dollar piece of litigation, uh, and uh, uh, it's probably the the biggest single expense the company has and going to VCs and saying, give me more money to give to lawyers is not an easy sell. So the real question is whether people with deeper pockets will also get involved in this. And uh, my candidate is the Department of Justice, uh, which ought to realize its institutional interest here. Uh, I, and, you know, there is absolutely no reason why the Justice Department shouldn't intervene in this case. Uh, uh, it's not like they owe Apple a lot of um, deference on, on things. So uh, maybe if we're lucky, we'll see the Justice Department come in and even up the side. Uh, I had one other thought on this. Uh, you know, the uh, Facebook has been suing NSO, and it's a similar thing. I mean, NSO is maybe a less attractive uh, uh, defendant, but they're claiming that NSO uh, set up a site that was designed to fool people into believing it was a WhatsApp site so that they could go there uh, and that that violated Facebook's uh, trademark, which is a theory that has been used in the past by Microsoft very effectively against uh, hackers that we would all agree are bad people. Uh, but um, it, this can be used against anybody who facilitates any kind of um, uh, intrusion. And it means that, uh, um, that that could take a tool away or potentially lead to substantial damage uh, awards uh, against companies that uh, uh, Silicon Valley thinks are too friendly to the government and not friendly enough to them. Well, in the NSO case... Um... Facebook's actually been very deferential to the government. So when Facebook caught NSO doing the uh, WhatsApp hacking, Facebook did not notify any uh, WhatsApp users who were subject to a pen register order. So On the theory that that would that would that would tip people off that the U.S. government was after them, uh, or, uh, or even though NSO might not have been working for the, yes. Foreign governments. Um, foreign governments and, using, using uh, the MLAT process. Yeah, MLAT or Cloud Act as it comes up. Um, and basically, they did not want to compromise police investigations. Um, we, the reason why NSO gets picked on is because it is not just used for 
legit law enforcement uh, investigations. They've they've earned their ire. And this is, I think, in some ways, Facebook just piling on on the jurisdictional issues as well, basically making damn sure that NSO is not going to be able to weasel out of being in court. Uh, it's pretty clear that uh, uh, NSO is not going to, I think that NSO is not going to win the argument that they don't do business in the U.S. Uh, uh, so I agree with you. Uh, but I think that, you know, the the idea that you can go after uh, hackers on trademark violations has a downside for uh, U.S. government hackers and FBI and NSA. Uh, uh, and it bears watching if you're uh, coming from those agencies. All right. <laughs> Speaking of bearing watching coming from those agencies, the German uh, uh, Constitutional Court has unloaded hundreds of pages of uh, grumpiness on the uh, BND, the German uh, Intelligence Agency. Uh, and it didn't quite say that the BND can't engage in espionage uh, on the internet or uh, uh, share the fruits of its uh, surveillance. Uh, but boy, did they raise bar after bar after bar. Matthew, what, what did the court do? Um, it basically expressed displeasure that the BND was operating in a way that most people would want the BND to operate, which is using tools to figure out risks to national security that are coming through a major internet uh, exchange hub that sits in Frankfurt, Germany. So apparently there are two huge internet exchange hubs. Uh, Frankfurt, Germany is the number two hub. The number one hub is in Brazil. And for years, the BND has tapped into that. Uh, and to the extent that it found intelligence that was useful to the NSA here in the US, they would uh, from time to time share that kind of information a lawsuit was brought by a bunch of journalists who said that uh, the BND's activities were jeopardizing their sources. And so that's how we got the uh, constitutional court case, which, as you said, Stuart, essentially poured cold water all over the BND's activities, including uh, making the, well, uh, ruling that uh, the constitutional protections afforded by uh, the German constitution extend to people outside the country. So that's that's where we are. Yeah. So it, it is a, a – you can see that they're straining not to say Germany cannot engage in surveillance for national security purposes. Uh, and so they've come up with uh, half a dozen to a dozen rules about things, you know, limitations that they think won't cripple – German intelligence. I'm not convinced that they're right about that. Uh, uh, and it's certainly the case that if it doesn't cripple them now, when the technology changes 10 years from now, it'll probably turn out to have one or more crippling elements to it. But uh, um, it, it is a, I, you know, it's, it really is hundreds of pages long. And it, it probably has, as I said, half a dozen um, uh, restrictions, including very strict focus on sharing of information with other intelligence agencies, read the United States. Um, and they don't, they don't rule it out. Uh, and their biggest concern seems to be that the U.S. government might be spying on Germans for the German intelligence, uh, which I suspect is not what's going on, but uh, that's their worry. Um, and that's probably solvable. But the idea that uh, the German BND can't share intelligence or 
uh, allow the U.S. government to specify the targets that it wants to uh, pursue in Frankfurt uh, um, without all kinds of independent reviews of what the U.S. government is doing and why is going to put a real crimp in intelligence uh, sharing, uh, which has always been difficult uh, with Germany, but is going to be even more so, I think. I agree with that, Stuart. And one other quick point is um, what worries me is national courts always look at one side of the ledger, which is we're going to stop doing this for country acts off in the U.S. They almost never look at the other side of the ledger, which is what is the U.S. providing to Germany that is useful for their national security? Um, it's just never accounted for in these rulings. The other thing is I think this is still in many ways um, post-Snowden fallout because one of the things that was revealed is that basically the U.S. would go to countries like Germany going, here, we'll provide the hardware and basically all the costs and the software to do this sort of large-scale observations under rather reasonable rules. We don't spy on your people, you don't spy on our people, and we can both see what else we're doing. And I think this is just, in many ways, lingering resentment from the U.S. systems that were revealed during Snowden, which were abusive but not abused. Yeah, I, 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 potentially abusive. I, I, I agree with you. And were sold as abuses uh, without evidence of the actual abuse. Uh, um, and now the the notion that there were abuses has become reified uh, uh, all across, uh, um, especially judicial uh, circles in Europe. All right. Well, let's turn. God, we got a lot of law. I don't know. Uh, we're going to have to stop talking so much law on the Cyber Law Podcast. Um, a, a, there's a whole bunch of stuff happening in the area of uh, takedowns, uh, uh, probably because AI is doing so many more of the takedowns uh, at places like YouTube and Facebook and uh, uh, Twitter. Um, and Uh, It's beginning to raise hard legal questions and hard policy questions as well. Um, And I guess I should include uh, DMCA takedowns because it's turning out there's some interesting uh, stuff going on there. Gus, can you give us an overview of what the week brought in terms of takedowns? Okay, Stuart, let's go crazy and party like it's 1999. You said uh, that uh, we're beginning to see a lot of hard questions Uh, We're seeing iterations on questions that we've been talking about um, since the late 1990s, post uh, Section 230, 1996, uh, Section 512, uh, and 1201 uh, in uh, 98. Um, And we've already seen the 1201 stuff. But uh, this week, we we have enough material for two hours here, but I'm going to give you two minutes. Um, It's hard being Google, man. It's hard having to serve so many masters. Uh, you have to, to serve uh, uh, the, the crazy conservatives in the United States, the crazy liberals in the United States, and the crazy China in the world. Uh, so uh, we oh, have- Don't forget the authoritarians in Brussels. Yeah, yes. Um, <laughs> uh, we, we do have some GDPR coming up a bit later, perhaps. Um, uh, but uh, this week alone, uh, YouTube- uh, uh, censored, uh, took down under 230. 
um, which they're totally under 230 allowed to do. Um, uh, uh, Professor Wachowski's uh, uh, discussion. So uh, he's a computer scientist and epidemiologist who uh, advocates for herd immunity uh, and opposes uh, the current lockdowns. And uh, he's saying stuff that is uh, uh, goes against the dom- prevailing narrative, shall we say. Uh, and uh, they took him down. Uh, they took down a. You know, I a bit, before you before you uh, uh, go too far on that. I was struck by the fact that uh, uh, the uh, Google uh, more or less said, "Look, if WHO says it's wrong, then we're taking it down." Which is, it's nuts. I mean, WTO WHO has said a lot of things that are. That it's now taken back. It's including, you know, we're being too hard on China, um, and I'm astonished that the sort of establishing an immediate mechanical drivetrain from a government agency straight to censorship doesn't get more attention. Well, in our communities, of course, uh, myopically, it gets a lot of attention. Um, uh, I mean, you, YouTube and Google, they're, they're stuck between uh, many rocks and many hard places here. Uh, either they make their own decisions, in which case they're going to get criticized, or they rely on some other expert where no video, you don't see my scare quotes, expert bodies, um, and they're going to make mistakes. Um, so uh, if we're going to be in the business of taking things down, they're going to get criticized. And if they don't take things down, they're going to get uh, criticized. Um, And uh, sometimes they apologize. So they also took down a a podcast app that uh, was compiling COVID-19 related content. That was a automated decision, um, uh, I believe. And they uh, apologized for it when asked. They said uh, that was a mistake. We shouldn't have done that. Um, in more authoritarian uh, regime news, there is a, a discussion on Twitter right now. Uh, Palmer Lucky has been talking about uh, how YouTube automatically is deleting any comments and possibly not just comments, but entire threads or posts uh, where the comments have been made that uh, reference uh, the Wu Mao, the uh, uh, Chinese uh, censorship uh, internet policing army. Uh, that's getting a lot of traction and discussion on Twitter right now. So I, I found that I found that. I mean, I was shocked when I saw that, uh, and I I wonder if there isn't more to the story. Uh, I, Twitter and YouTube, neither of them has any real business uh, in China, uh, and shouldn't be subject to um, direct government control. And to to take stuff down that is referencing an authoritarian government's authoritarian arm um it, it just just puzzles me i there there must be more to this story i just wish uh, somebody uh, uh would cover it yeah uh, i'm looking forward this is a story that's only been uh or an iteration of the story that's only been breaking over the last 24 hours so uh, i'm hoping that some uh, intrepid, good tech policy journalists dig into this uh, so that we can find out what's going on here. Because if there is what's going on here going on here, uh, that's a big going on here to be going on. If we can just get Donald Trump to say, yeah, that sounds like a good idea to me, they'll be on it. <laughs> um, no comment. I don't want to be censored. Um, uh so that's all Section 230 stuff. Then we've got a whole slate of Section 512 stuff. So 
uh, for uh, listeners, the uh, five-second reminder, Section 512 deals with copyright. Section 230 deals with non-copyright content moderation. And Section 512 sets up this notice and takedown regime. If I upload copyrighted material to YouTube, the owner can go to YouTube and say, hey, that's mine. You have to take it down. And it sets up this ping pong match. Um, And uh, probably the biggest news here is that the Copyright Office, after several years of proceedings, um, issued a a much anticipated report on Section 512 uh, this week where uh, uh, it uh, basically said, yeah, everything is balanced. Things are looking like the system is working well. And Congress, you should really change this um, because uh, Section 512 is uh, too onerous and burdensome for content owners. Um, so, uh, God, well, they, they are the copyright office. They, they might as well be the copyright lobbying office. I've always uh, they, they've <laughs> long held that hat. Yes. Um, so, uh, that report is out. Uh, they have a couple dozen lengthy recommendations, uh, to Congress, even though they say they're only making small recommendations along the margin, uh, uh, the, uh, uh copyright industry, uh, both on the, uh, uh, pro safe harbor side and on the pro content side, everyone is upset with the copyright office. So uh, the copyright office finds itself uh, strange bedfellows with Google here. It's hard to uh, uh, serve multiple masters being uh, stuck between a rock and a hard place. Um, and we also have a couple of stories that demonstrate the importance of and the difficulties of 512. Um, Google News, this was in the story, in the news. Um, Google uh, is having lots of uh, stories taken down with fraudulent or forged uh, 512 uh, takedown notices. Um, so uh, if you have an unflattering story about you, you can pay someone to uh, file a, uh, a takedown notice on your behalf. Uh, so that they're the actors, party acting in bad faith, not you, um, uh, or at least you can't be sued for it. Uh, and uh, that tricks Google into automatically taking down the content. Um, and a uh, really interesting story about classical musicians trying to perform uh, on uh, uh during uh, uh, the uh, lockdown, trying to perform music on Google, on YouTube, and uh, their shows are being uh, trapped up in 512 uh, filters and taken down. So what they're doing is basically uh, something like um, what, uh, where you basically recognize songs and recognize music. And the problem is, is good classical music sounds similar enough that it's going to false positive when Yo-Yo Ma's playing uh, a Bach concerto, it's going to false positive with a previous recording that was copyrighted. Yeah, well, it, well it, yes even... and no, right? If you, if, if you, if you hashed it, it would, it would hash differently for sure. Uh, Except and that, so what they're doing uh, is they're doing crappy copies with lots of uh, lossy uh, uh, room for error. And then they're hashing that, don't you think? Well, you have to because the problem is is your conventional cryptographic hashes don't work in those contexts. I guess you're right. Because they, 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 you they transcode perfect. all right. the time. Um And this is a hard problem with audio and a hard problem with video. And in fact, it's impossible on the audio for YouTube just simply because 
any good similarity match will have those false positives. Yeah, if you so have, I can't help feeling maybe maybe this is me being um, uh, a, a, a hippie from the '90s. But you know, if the work is out of copyright, I uh, presumptively, when somebody's playing that work on the uh, the internet, it is not copyrighted. Uh, the music uh, for, is not copyrighted. The performance the per- is. Of course. That, and, and, and I'm sure, but you know, the, the idea that people are losing sales because somebody is playing their CD in the background on the, on the internet strikes me as bizarre. The, the problem here is the, uh, uh, it's so obvious that there's some uh, uh, non-violative use that could be up that to take things down without demanding a lot more from uh, uh, the copyright holder for the particular performance in, uh, uh, at issue is um, uh, really uh, subjecting hundreds of years of material to copyrights that, that, that shouldn't be copyrighted. And, and then we add in the next layer of uh, challenge here, which is how do we algorithmically automatically differentiate between a classical, a catalog of classical music, which has been recorded and uh, performed hundreds or thousands of times and the actual underlying music and most of the performances are not copyrighted with Miley Cyrus and popular music, which is what most of the algorithms are trained on uh, and uh, 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 tuned to identify and feed into the takedown or the content ID process. Um, And we've just added a layer of AI on top of the layer of uh, uh, content analysis, uh, which uh, brings us back to the Copyright Office uh, 512 report and how do we balance uh, these various competing interests uh, which takes us back to Google serving multiple masters, and you can't do it. So I, I, let's let's bring a little more law in. Uh, the Supreme Court is starting to see Section two thirty cases. They've already denied cert in a lawsuit against Facebook for hosting and actually sending people using their recommendation engine to terrorist content, to Hamas terrorist content. Um, and the argument was that's, that's, a, that's material assistance to terrorism, uh, which usually, you know, if you give a glass of water to a gorilla walking through your village, you've provided material assistance to terrorism. So it doesn't, doesn't require much. And they beat the rap uh, by pleading Section 230, you know, we're immune. Um, I think the Second Circuit said yes, uh, and the Supreme Court said we're not taking that case. There wasn't a conflict, so maybe that's the answer. Um, They've got a new cert petition uh, in front of them from Malwarebytes, uh, uh, where Malwarebytes is saying, hey, you know, it says that we can take down things that are otherwise objectionable, and that means we can take down things that uh, we think compete with us. Uh, and they were, I think, if I remember right, they were uh, antivirus uh, uh, software that took out competing antivirus so- software. That's maybe a, a oversimplification of the case, which the, the provider of that software sued, and Malwarebytes said, hey, 230 lets us take down anything as long as we think it's offensive. Uh, and uh, uh, Supreme Court, uh, the uh, Ninth Circuit said, no, I don't think so. It's got to be objectionable on some ground other than you think it's competitive. Um, and the um, Malwarebytes is taking that to the Supreme Court. They've got some good lawyers on their petition. My bet is Supreme Court ducks this one too. Just any any thoughts on that? The, the courts, i going to duck this one. Um, uh, the 
uh, give uh, the tell that that's what the court's going to do is in the uh, petition itself, where one of the arguments uh, that uh, Neil Katyal, uh, who's uh, who wrote the uh, brief, um, makes is uh, this is an exceptionally rare opportunity for the court to uh, address what's a very important issue that's unlikely to come before the court again. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that tells the court, look, this is a small enough, narrow enough issue that it's not worth your time to address. I do um, think it, I, it I, could be in some it is in some ways a very important issue, but uh, it doesn't raise uh, uh, the sort of broad issue or the really, really super important uh, issue uh, that the court's going to, I, I think, uh, uh, give attention. to. I do hope when the uh, the, the um, re- reform of Section 230 comes up and they say, uh, what do we mean by otherwise uh, offensive? They say, you know, antitrust violations are not something where you can't, you can't just say, I, I took him out because he competed with me. Yeah, I, uh, that's got to be the kind of motivation that you don't get to plead as a defense against uh, an antitrust case. Uh, all right, let's get, let's get out of law and back into some good old cyber attacks. Matthew, uh, take us back. The Israelis uh, are accused of knocking out an Iranian port facility. Exactly. They, uh, they've essentially shut down all of the computer networks that handle all the port traffic, both the seaborne traffic and the land traffic, the trucks that roll into the ports to unload their goods and uh, took them completely offline. They had backed up trucks uh, going, you know, away from the port, caused mass disruption. And uh, the theory is that the Israelis did this because it was retaliation for an Iranian attack, Iranian attack on some rural Israeli water system uh, command and control software. And so this is just more of the same. I mean, you know, Israel has been very aggressive about responding to asymmetrical attacks on it uh, from a kinetic perspective, and we should only expect it would do the same from a cyber weapons perspective. And, you know, uh, Israeli not unreasonably views Iran as its number one threat in the region, and it's going to treat it as such. Uh, so a whiny international law of armed conflict uh, types would say, well, I'm not sure that's proportionate. Uh, how much damage did they do to the uh, 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 water system? Uh, but I think the, the, the answer is here. You need to respond in a way that will uh, discourage future ex- uh, experimentation with attacks on water systems. Uh, so uh, 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 I'm, I'm glad that Israel was willing to do that. Uh, uh, Nick, I uh, I, I I love the way at, at the at the end of the day the dark net repeats all of the social and economic forms of the uh, light net, uh, uh, and, and, but this is this is one step beyond. Everybody's always known that malware has a bunch of security problems in it. Uh, It's been 10 years that people have been writing reports about uh, uh, ways to take over remote access tools. Uh, uh, And now uh, uh, the the guys who write them have found a solution to that problem. Yep. And it's called, uh, you pay somebody to test for it. The, over the past 15 years, the true, true innovation in cyber crime economy was creating an economy that we've long seen 
diversification and specialization. So like somebody who specializes in compromising computers, somebody who specializes in sending spam. And this has been the huge problem. And these days, the uh, big revenue stream is ransomware. The problem is, is your ransomware has to be well enough engineered that your victims can't get around your ransomware by um, exploiting it. And so now enter services to allow you to know that your ransomware is free from exploitable uh, vulnerabilities so that you're secure against security researchers. Um, and so Brian Krebs did a great write-up on the current state of the art. And the root problem is ransomware that if we didn't have this economic driver of ransomware, we wouldn't have these innovations. And so but there's so much my... money there that they can afford to do this. Right. And this is uh, why I want Bitcoin to die in a fire, because Bitcoin goes away. It gets the pain point of the ransomware gangs, because you don't play whack-a-mole with bad guys. You play whack-a-mole with their business models. And the key component on all of this is having a payment system that allows victims to pay. And that's Bitcoin. Nothing else will work because everything else uh, has to abide by money laundering laws. So, I, you know, for a long time, we have assumed that uh, open source security was better than uh, proprietary software security. Uh, um, <laughs> and, 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 and yeah, I, I, I think... Uh, <laughs> Who, who is this we, Stuart? <laughs> well, you're right. I, I, what uh, we used to hear was uh, our, all bugs are shallow if you have enough um, uh, eyes on them. Uh, I, uh, but the idea that you can crowdsource um, uh, security has, uh, has died in a fire, uh, but the fire is still burning. This, this was a, a good story suggesting that all kinds of open source security uh, sucks mainly because it has borrowed insecure open source code that's already out there uh, and added it in either without uh, checking it or without updating it after people start to find problems with it. Yeah, so th there's a fundamental problem putting on uh, my economist hat with the all bugs are shallow I I narrative, which is we've got 10 fingers and two eyes. We write code with our fingers, we review it with our eyes, so we're producing a lot more code than we're reviewing. Even if we do this whole community network thing, um, uh, I, we're, we're, this is technical debt. This is uh, creating a negative externality. Uh, the idea uh, that libraries are secure um, should have been uh, uh, dead a long time ago. It really should have been dead with, uh, remember the Heartbleed bug? Um, yep. uh, that uh, uh, really should have been the turning point in any belief that uh, uh, relying on libraries will be uh, secure. But this is a, a nice report that finds 70% uh, uh, of open source software has uh, vulnerabilities that are imported uh, from insecure libraries. Um, I th this is a infrastructure that has fundamental uh, uh, problems uh, at its core. Um, and 
I, I'm not a open source uh, naysayer. I think open source is uh, absolutely uh, wonderful, incredibly important and powerful, but we need to be realistic about uh, what its uh, threat profile is and how secure it really is. Yeah, I, I, I have worked with a, a company that, uh, it, or a, a, a small company that basically does this uh, for companies. It says, we know, we know what the libraries are that are open source and we know where the, uh, the patches have gone and we can find in your code where somebody imported a piece of software from six versions back and tell you what all the uh, vulnerabilities and maybe some of the uh, uh, deliberately bad coding that has been incorporated into that. What we need to do is uh, get some vertical integration between uh, the ransomware guys and the open source guys so that the open source uh, uh, guys will be able to use Bitcoin to hire some pen testers. Uh, and then we've created a nice economy. Except that uh, there's actually a, another economy that started going on in these libraries where what you do as a bad guy is buy the rights to control one of these libraries, either deliberately or because it's abandoned, and use that to do a malicious update to the library so that it, say, steals the Bitcoin when used in a Bitcoin wallet application. Sweet. God, I, I, you, you have to love the imagination of uh, the bad guys in this field. Uh, uh, and, um, and, and more uh, uh, wild stuff coming uh, as AI starts to become uh, part of, uh, of the development process. Uh, great story uh, uh, that suggests that uh, there's a new kind of Turing test, which is uh, uh, if you're sexting with a, an artificial intelligence agent uh, and you can't tell, uh, that meets uh, something like a Turing test. Uh, and there was a good article uh, uh, out this week uh, uh, by a woman who said she, she did it and was surprisingly hot. Uh, 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 but my favorite uh, uh, was uh, was this uh, a bit of artificial intelligence. Hey, Doc, have you heard about this new technology? Are you speaking about this new algorithm to copy voices? Yes, it is developed by a startup called Lyrebird. This is huge. They can make us say anything now, really anything. The good news is that they will offer the technology to anyone. This is huge. All right, so that was in uh, uh, meant to be uh, uh, President Obama and President Trump uh, talking about a liar bird artificial intelligence uh, uh, agent that uh, tries to imitate voices. It manages to both imitate them effectively and make them sound robotic. So we've got a ways before we have to worry, but uh, I thought that was uh, pretty scary because if you could manage to make that a little less, uh, uh, you know, if you could put like uh, rising tones at the end of questions and the like, uh, you could you could do a pretty good job. So, it, uh, you know, those, you guys need to worry that uh, sooner or later you will all be prepared re replaced with bots that sound a lot like you, but which uh, uh, mostly say, oh, yes, Stuart, you're right. Stuart, a couple of us teach at universities, we're already worried as we transition to online teaching that we're all going to be replaced with bots. <laughs> or our right. videos from last semester. <laughs> that's the real problem, isn't it? Uh, it's not like uh, uh, you, you, you can uh, produce new content every semester. All right. Uh, the European Union is uh, uh, the parliament has said, uh, you know, maybe we shouldn't share fingerprint data with the UK after uh, uh, Brexit. Uh, um, I'm not sure that that policy is going to stick, Matthew, and I'm not sure 
um, uh, whether uh, this is a decision not to share or just a decision to postpone a decision? It seems more like the latter, Stuart. Um, and even if it's the former, it's kind of meaningless. So the vote in the European Parliament was uh, it was pretty narrow. Uh, so there was a good split in the Parliament as to whether they should take the stance. This is sort of the equivalent of an advisory opinion to the European Council, which is the that's the body in the EU machinery that is made up of the heads of states of all the individual EU members. So it's even an open question as to whether the European Council members are going to pay much attention to the Parliament vote, um, yeah. but you know more to come. And it's all subject. It's it's all about you know what their negotiating stance is going to be for the next several months. I, I, I my guess is this is uh, the Parliament just indulging in its anti-British uh, uh, sentiment, which would be understandable given that uh, uh, the Brits are leaving. <laughs> but uh, let me indulge mine. Uh, it turns out that uh, GDPR is a domestic relations law, too, uh, because it tells grandma when she can't put pictures of her grandchildren on Facebook. Uh, uh, <laughs> Gus, is it really that stupid? Uh Yes, it is. Um, we're talking about the GDPR here. Uh, the, the most delightful thing to note about this story is uh, we have just celebrated the uh, two-year anniversary of the GDPR uh, coming into force. Uh, so uh, th this is the birthday gift, which uh, the uh, familial relations element makes uh, especially nice. But uh, uh, a grandmother posted against uh, the parents' wishes photos of uh, her grandchild um, and the uh, grandparent, the parents turned to the GDPR to uh, uh, force her to take them down. So uh, yes, you can now get your relatives a takedown notice for uh, their birthday or the GDPR's birthday. So uh, that's an unintended consequence of the GDPR, but in my view, uh, ninety percent of the law that is established by uh, privacy uh, legislation turns out to be unintended consequence. That's the problem. Uh, uh, but now- And you for... wonder why people like me oppose crypto regulation. <laughs> that's, a, that's, I think, an intended consequence of uh, the uh, regulation for many people. Yeah, let's break up the nuclear family. That's good. Okay. All right. Uh, and now a moment of seriousness. Uh, I want to I tell all our listeners that we will never, the Cyber Law Podcast will never- sell out for the Boeing. We are not going to take $100 million from Spotify and go exclusive. Uh, we won't even do it for $50 million uh, because they aren't going to offer that to us. Uh, uh, but Joe Rogan, uh, he got $100 million, uh, to go to Spotify and be exclusive. Uh, and uh, God bless him. Uh, uh, I hope that uh, uh, he'll drop by in the Boeing someday. Uh, and finally, last uh, uh, item, we have SIGINT, we have HUMINT, um, uh, we have ELINT, uh, and now we have BEERINT. Uh, military and intelligence personnel have been identified from a beer uh, uh, application, beer lovers application, where you take pictures and uh, check into locations where you're enjoying a fine brew. Um, and uh, Bellingcat did a great 
uh, uh, OPSEC stripping work on this application to discover that uh, uh, you could you could identify the farm where CIA agents are, are trained. Uh, you could identify people who were uh, enjoying a fine uh, alcoholic beverage at Guantanamo, hopefully not uh, actual detainees. Um, and uh, uh, I, it looks as though the beer application is, is saying, hey, that's all in the privacy settings. You don't want to be identified uh, you need to you need to do a better job of setting your uh, your privacy settings so that's a lesson to us all go check your privacy settings uh, i want to turn now to interviewing mara histendal um who uh, is an investigative journalist and the author of a new book the scientist and the spy a true story of china the fbi and industrial espionage so, Mara, uh, well, first, welcome. Uh, uh, it's great to have you. But, uh, and uh, I understand, uh, I, you know, this actually is a tragedy in my view, but you have started working for The Intercept? <laughs> yes, I have. God. I'm an investigative reporter. Well, I and, and I'm sure that you know there aren't a lot of places that pay uh, particularly well for investigative journalism, but uh, uh, I have to say that uh, the Intercept, in my mind, is so tainted by their ideology that uh, it's hard to be com- to take completely serious that see their uh, investigative journalism because you start with the assumption that they started with an agenda. So uh, I'm sorry to hear that, but uh, I uh, I look forward to reading your stuff and to being proven wrong in my assumptions about uh, uh, the direction in which the, the uh, copy editors, editors will nudge you. Uh, no, I, anyway. I, I would argue that everywhere has an ideology. And they have. you have to admit that they've done great pieces on China. I mean, we know about um, the Google Dragonfly project because of an intercept investigation. And, and so, you know, it's a very ripe area for um, for reporting well and, and it's it's fair to it, it is fair that uh, if you actually want to be in the business of making money in journalism uh, uh, you're gonna end up giving hostages to China so I uh, it is uh, um, somebody like the intercept uh, uh, is more likely to tell it like they see it uh, than uh, than a commercial uh, uh, enterprise uh, I know that They'll tell me they're not. They are a commercial enterprise, but uh, uh, they're they're running on uh, Silicon Valley tr- charity, as far as I can tell. Anyway, let's let's. We didn't come to talk about the Intercept. Uh, we came to talk about a couple of stories that you've done. One, a book, uh, "The Scientist and the Spy: A True Story of China, the FBI, and Industrial Espionage," and a uh, a, a great story that uh, just came out last week about uh, probably the least well known. Uh, of the big AI champions, artificial intelligence champions in China, a company called iFlyTech. Uh, um, can we talk about I, your iFlyTech story first? Sure. All right. So iFlyTech is a very successful artificial intelligence uh, uh, company that does not seem to have had quite the same origin story as companies like Baidu uh, and Tencent. Uh, um, it, how did they get started and what do they do? 
Yeah, they're often grouped among the surveillance companies that have cropped up in the past few years. So the companies that are doing, that are specializing in facial recognition, um, iris recognition, and iFlyTech's area has been voice. Um, but they're, they are unique in that they have been around for 20 years and got their start at the time um, as the other, the, as the big platform companies like Baidu, uh, they initially focused on doing voice synthesis. Um, the, the impetus to get started was that IBM, IBM had come out with this product called Via Voice that allowed uh, for dictation from for in, in many languages, but in Chinese was, uh, was particularly impressive for for uh, people there who were dealing with, um, there's this issue in Chinese where it, it is hard or was hard at that time to type the language. Uh, it required learning a different input method um, because, you know, I have this issue that the characters don't easily map onto a QWERTY keyboard. And so, you know, many scholars saw that if you could find a really easy way to come up uh, with a system of dictation or um, voice recognition, that you could uh, make you know, lives of many professional people in China a lot easier. So Via Voice had some lim limitations, like a lot of technologies at that time, but it really excited people in China. And it was developed by a Chinese researcher who had moved overseas. Um, but the catch for many people in China was that it was not a Chinese company. Um, so there was this question of national pride and you know, particularly stung because a foreign company had effectively mastered the Chinese language. And so this young, then PhD student in at the University of Science and Technology in China um, took up the task of creating a Chinese alternative. So um, it took them a while to actually get going. Uh, and they were competing with Microsoft, uh, Cortana, and Siri, and and the like. Uh, um, but it looks as though they uh, they really have taken the Chinese market uh, uh, pretty dramatically. Uh, How did they manage to do that? So they got their start focusing on voice synthesis, which is somewhat easier than voice recognition. And they first were developing call center technology for Huawei. So they had um, this big commercial contract and were doing a lot of, um, of big commercial projects like that for their first few years. And then over time, um, they got their hands on better and better data. Um, China Mobile, so the, ma the major um, mobile service provider in China is a major um, shareholder of iFlyTech. And so if I could, so, if I could stop you right there, yeah. I, 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 the, you know, the artificial intelligence relies on very clever algorithms and a lot of computing power, but the data, the training data is just essential. And uh, there's been a lot of talk about how access to training data could turn out, especially inside China, to, to be a, a big advantage of the Chinese internal market. And it sounds to me as though what you're saying is uh, iFlyTech has already 
seize that advantage to uh, uh, to become a lot better at um, uh, artificial intelligence involving voice. Right. Well, I would argue companies like Google um, are, and Microsoft are also very good at that sort of AI right now. Um, the difference is that iFlyTech has specialized not just on Mandarin, in Mandarin, but in other Chinese dialects. And with Mandarin, they initially um, did develop the um, or train the algorithm on China mobile data. So, so that the China mobile being a major shareholder was very critical. And, you know, you can question whether uh, China mobile users of which I was one in China for, for many years were gave permission for their text messages and so forth um, to be used to train iFlytex um, AI. So they had access to that data. There are also many, uh, voice data brokers in China th that just sell um, large troves of, of voice data. And then over the past few years, they've moved into other dialects and have really gained a foothold in rural China and in second and third tier cities um, among people who don't have any any similar products if they're, you know, if they're a primarily a um, Fujianese speaker, or they speak in Shanghainese. Um, some older people still don't speak Mandarin very well. And iFlytech provided the products um, that could help them, uh, you know, for example, do voice to text. So where they're speaking into their phone and then the tech and they're able to text um, people on WeChat that way. And so that, I, I, I do think, let me, let me uh, uh, just jump in. Um, sure. Google's never going to be as good in Fujianese, are they? Uh, uh, they just don't have the, the, the um, practice, the number of people using them. And that is what the training data advantage is. That plus, uh, as you said, uh, the lack of privacy enforcement that would have prevented people from, uh, uh, prevented the company from just saying, hey, this guy's talking, let's use his voice. Yes. And there is this cultural issue that comes into place, which is that comes, comes into play, which is that voice is very widely embraced in China. So uh, WeChat gained a foothold early on by introducing voice text. So often instead of calling somebody or instead of sending a string of texts, you would send them a string of one minute messages. So they're capped at a minute. Um, so, you know, I had friends who would send me like 12 minutes of just monologue and, and then you send them, send them 12 minutes back and, and you kind of converse that way. That, that method of communication is really popular um, because of the difficulty of inputting and because also in Chinese you have a lot of homophones and um, there's just a lot of context that is contained in a spoken language that, that isn't, always there when you, uh, when you write it out. And so the, the, this very popular mode of communication, um, then, you know, there was, it became a lot of need for people to, um, be able to send those voice messages, uh, and transcribe them to text because often you're in a meeting, you don't want to listen to 12 minutes of audio. And so iFlytech got its start, um, among consumers by, with providing this app called Input, um, which allows you to add this key universal keyboard to your phone, give iFlytech access in any app where you use the keyboard, 
and you can use dictation in those apps. And and but of the, course, they can I, I, collect a lot of data. If you're going to to writing, uh, 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 my understanding is you can speak in Fujianese and it comes out in Mandarin because it's all the same basic written uh, language. Uh, are there like social implications for well, so people who don't speak Mandarin suddenly producing written Mandarin that uh, looks like everybody else's? So Mandarin is the spoken dialect and Fujianese also. And you know, one of the Sorry, I, I, right, unifiers in China. Ideograms. Right. So the Chinese characters are universal and used across different dialects. And so that's another reason that this sort of technology is really, really useful in China. Um, and I kind of struggled as I was reporting this article with um, just being wowed by the by the applications of this technology and then realizing, you know, now I need to delete it from my phone because of the privacy issue and <laughs> um, and being a little you know, disappointed uh, at the same time. Well, that raises the question of, of uh, iFlyTuck has been sanctioned by the U.S. government for uh, its participation in, uh, um, I think, Xinjiang, uh, the uh, the Uyghur parts of uh, uh, China. Uh, they don't have a great reputation. MIT, I think, has, has cut its ties with them. Um, where does all that come from? Right. Um, well, Human Rights Watch did a very detailed report on iFlyTech's work in with the Chinese government um, in, I believe, twenty end of twenty seventeen. So, in addition to having these con- consumer facing apps, iFlyTech has a number of projects with local governments and with um, also with the central government to develop uh, speaker recognition. And so, I mean, that's, it's basically a plan to catalog people's voices and then um, be able to eventually pinpoint their identities by the sound of their voice. Um, You know, it's a program that has immense interest and application for the Chinese government and iFlyTech provides the, the technology for it. Um, so there's that. The, at the same time, they have also done a fair amount of work in Xinjiang, uh, where an estimated one million Muslim Uyghurs are interned in detention camps or have been interned in detention camps. And so these two things together provoked a lot of uh, concern within the human rights community early on. Um, it, I started reporting um, after that report came out. I was also interested in the fact that, you know, iFlyTech was on, on the China's national AI team along with these other big platform companies, and yet many people in the West hadn't heard of it. So I managed to visit their headquarters um, in Hefei, uh, which is kind of a provincial backwater of the capital of Anhui province. And then late last fall, the company was put on the entity list with a number of other um, Chinese tech companies that engage in surveillance work. And the reason given at the time um, was their work in Xinjiang. Um, But of course, the work on the um, speaker recognition is concerning as well. And let me ask, uh, what do you think the actual consequences will be of being on the entity list. Uh, uh, they, uh, 
they are mostly a Chinese, uh, uh, focused on the Chinese market, uh, certainly not the U.S. market, uh, but they do need some, they need hardware, uh, maybe that's all they need, um, uh, that might come from the uh, uh, from U.S. companies. Uh, do you actually expect the sanctions to be effective in any way? You know, apparently they have had some effect on iFlytech's uh, earnings for the first quarter of this year, but at the same time, it's, it's it you know, the pandemic hit China as well, and um, that's had an impact. And so it, it, it's probably hard to say at this point. Um, they they are a company that, like many Chinese tech companies, they have a, you know, like one person set up in Silicon Valley um, in, a, in an office there. So they do have a U.S. office. They have a fancy um, lobbying firm that they've employed to improve their image in the United States. But most of their business is coming from China, and and you know, if anything, I think they've set their sights on the developing world. And you know, for many Chinese companies, the lure of government projects is just too great. Um, the not just because it's um, steady, predictable business, even at a moment when the economy is tanking, um, but also because they get access to quite a lot of data that way. Um, government data sets are quite rich and um, robust. And that's, that's certainly this, one way to put it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so I wasn't able to, to definitively show to what degree the data from government projects is used to train um, the algorithms for the consumer facing products, but, and vice versa, but there is, there does seem to be very little firewall between the two areas. And so, you know, one of the enticing things about doing this, this government work, um, is that you can take your data from Xinjiang, for example, and develop, um, very good translation software for the Uyghur language, uh, or do the same in Tibet, which which iFlytek has done, and and then you know it's it's becomes this whole cycle because that that app provides a service to people um, in Xinjiang and Tibet who who really are in need of of good um, translation and um, dictation software, and then presumably their data could then be fed back to the government, and um, so it's this whole um, nice circular process for the company. And they do a lot of voice synthesis still. So they, you, you could find yourself interacting with a bot and not know it. Yes, they do everything in, and they are now a larger AI company. So they have, um, medical products. They have, um, you know, like using AI for diagnostics in medicine. Um, they, they did actually manage to get an exemption to the entity list designation, um, on that basis. Uh, in the U.S., uh, yes. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> so um, they also have a lot of educational products, and um, they've made new inroads as a result of you know China shutting down schools and have gotten into more classrooms. Um, and you can certainly question what the um, privacy protections would be on on children's data. Um, that's probably a topic for a whole other article. Um, so, th- <laughs> so they are, they're fairly. You know they they have uh, they have their hands in in a lot of different areas right now. Um, but for me, voice 
was the most compelling one because it gets at some of these um, unique issues that are brought up by the Chinese language. And, and, you know, it's an area we've heard, we've heard quite a lot about facial recognition in China and less about some of these other areas of um, biometric recognition that are, that are also moving quickly. Before you got on, we heard from uh, President Obama and President Trump talking about how wonderful Lyrebird technology is. And plausibly, in some senses, it was still quite robotic, but uh, and it lacked what I would have thought you'd absolutely have to have for Chinese. Uh, it lacked tonality, uh, uh, an ability to raise or lower the tone at the uh, at an appropriate point in the conversation. But still, it sounded a lot like them. Uh, and so uh, it does raise the question whether um, today iFitech could uh, uh, generate uh, fake calls from your grandma. Oh, and actually, they have uh, they have created a video for a President Trump speaking Chinese that that went viral. It, it's pretty <laughs> funny because they managed to replicate his kind of verbal tics. Um, they did the same for Obama, and it's going to be huge. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So you know, there was a, a fascinating report that came out from um, ASPI, the Australian think tank, on. Oh yeah the use of um, translation companies and other sorts of benign, uh, you know, ostensibly benign technologies to feed government propaganda and surveillance. And that's this is something that not just iFlyTech is doing, but also other companies um, that are providing translation services around the world. And then the data is, is um, being fed back to the Chinese government. And one reason is that it can um, help the government with monitoring public opinion. Um, so, and shaping it for that matter. And shaping it. Right. And, and, some of these technologies are also used for um, creating deep fakes and so forth. And, I, you know, I, that report illustrated what was possible. Um, it, I don't think it didn't draw a clear line between deep fakes and some of the capabilities that are out there, but it would make sense that the state would certainly want to move in that direction eventually. Um, so you got, you, you, you got a long way into this company. I remember you talking about how you... Uh, charmed a couple of uh, um, customer service people into finally putting you in touch with the uh, guy who could answer the question whether he'd meet with you. Uh, um, and you've done that before. I, 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 you say in the book that uh, you, you, you've actually had uh, uh, Chinese researchers, if I understand it, name a fossil after you. Uh, let me ask this. I, can you go back now? You know, just to just to clarify, the the work on fossils is um, much less political than, than this sort <laughs> yes, of work. Yes, I understand, um, but I, yeah. I, I I I I'm going to treat it as a testament to your charm uh, and your ability to <laughs> to uh, to be charming in Chinese, uh, which is not you know uh, that's a that's a real skill, and not a lot of uh, American reporters can do that. And it would be a shame if you couldn't go back. But uh, I'm guessing if you you know you can only r- report on China these days for. A, a year or two before you say something that uh, gets you banned. Yeah, it is, of course, a very tense moment for journalism in China, for for of any kind, Western or Chinese, and you know, with many U.S. reporters having effectively gotten kicked out. Uh, I know I 
you know, it's, it's a, it's not a time where I would advise anyone to um, go do sensitive reporting without having crossed all their T's and dotted all their I's. And, and, you know, it's just sad to think that I may not ever go back to China because it's a place where I spent eight years and I, and I have friends there and so forth. Um, But, and it's also just on a deeper level, sad to watch the country move in the direction that it is moving. Um, You know, to some degree, the pandemic is being used as a pretext to deepen surveillance, um, to crack down in Hong Kong. Obviously, it has happened over the past two weeks. And, you know, it it will, I'm watching it with um, a worrying sense of foreboding. Yeah, now it's got to be hard. In in an odd way, it seems to me the scientist and the spy. Uh, um, it shows the the shoe on the other foot. I mean, the journalists in China, especially Western journalists, are going to be suspected of espionage. Uh, Chinese um, uh, tech uh, uh, scientists uh, in the United States were increasingly viewed as potential Chinese espionage agents, and your book sort of unpacks the story of a an FBI investigation of one such case where the um, Chinese uh, um, uh, national who has married a woman who's become a U.S. citizen, he's got U.S. citizen kids, but he's still affiliated with uh, uh, China and he gets a job with a big agro-tech company in China and finds himself out in the middle of fields in Iowa, stealing seed um, that uh, might enable his employer in China to illicitly reproduce the the brand of seed that the uh, the U.S. giants, tech giants, have produced. Uh, uh, and it's the story of how that turns from uh, a a, um, a phone call and a simple police inquiry into a massive FBI investigation. Uh, um, so I, I, it, it's a fascinating story. And I don't think, you know, usually these things have good guys and bad guys. I'm, I'm at a loss to see any good guys in this story. <laughs> well, I tried to make the various characters in the story complex. And so that people you know, they wouldn't, nobody would be villainized, but people, readers would also feel on some level like they could identify um, with, with them. And so I, in telling that story, I interwove um, the narrative, three narratives. One was the story of Robert Moore, who you described, who's found in this Iowa cornfield, um, trying to steal Monsanto corn. Uh, one is the FBI special agent, Mark Benton, who is tasked with leading the investigation into Robert Moore. And then there's also this uh, farmer and seed breeder in Illinois named Kevin Montgomery, who was hired as kind of the foreign face of this seed theft operation and had no knowledge of the illegal activities that were going on, um, but then found himself becoming this reluctant FBI informant. So he was a really interesting character for me as well. And I got interested in the story, 
you know, both because the details were kind of wild. Um, you had car chases and airport busts and seeds getting sent back to China in microwave popcorn bags at one point. And also because um, it happened at a time when there were charges being brought in many economic espionage cases involving China. And so there was this trend, this clear trend. Um, I started reporting the story in um, 2014. And since then, there have been dozens of cases involving technologies like wind turbines and you know the whitener that's used in paint and Oreo cookies and um, insulation that goes into buildings and things like that. So this focus shifting from going after um, military theft or theft of technologies that, technologies that are dual use to technologies that are really, you know, really kind of more benign. But still the argument is that um, it, stealing these technologies is a national security threat. And that is what um, DOJ and the FBI have argued for a number of years. And since the Trump administration um, and DOJ launched the China initiative in 2018, that focus has only intensified. Yeah. So I, I, I agree with you. The China initiative, it seems to be pulling up different kinds of fish. It's mostly finding uh, um, university professors who haven't uh, honestly disclosed their connection to the Thousand Talents program. By, um, but it, it, it has picked up a lot of fish. Uh, and the 1993 uh, uh, Economic Espionage Act uh, was, I'm, I, I, you say, and I agree with you, uh, written because there were a bunch of FBI agents who uh, were doing counterintelligence and who wanted to make sure that their counterintelligence mission made sense to the new Democrats who were less interested in national security because, you know, the Cold War was over and more interested in American competitiveness. And they wanted a, a, a job to do that would relate to those goals. Uh, and so the earlier effort, which you're talking about here, did have an element of, uh, uh, we need to show that counterintelligence is still relevant in a world that doesn't have a Soviet uh, enemy. That's right. And then to some degree, the you know 9-11 and counterterrorism took over for a number of years. Um, and then concurrent in with China's rise, this focus shifted back to going after technology theft and economic espionage. Uh, and, you know, it's an, it's, this has also happened over the period that the FBI has shifted from being more of a law enforcement organization to working on counterintelligence issues. Um, some of these cases raise very complex questions. Like they involve the relationship of a company to the Chinese government, which is, which is, you know, usually there's some connection, but it's um, often opaque. It's hard to it's hard to unravel. Uh, they involve complex technologies in many cases. And, you know, even corn breeding. I learned, and I'm not going to bore you, but <laughs> corn breeding is very complex. And then, um, you know, they involve intellectual property law. Uh, also very complicated. And so you have agents in field offices around the country who are suddenly tasked with um, pursuing these cases. 
Um, many of them have done a very good job. Um, they are also some that have made mistakes. And then there, you know, there is a there's a question that's being raised by um, by community organizers and activists of whether this is a worthy use of our resources. Well, and and fair enough because um, this story they ended up. Uh, prosecuting and uh, uh, sentencing this guy for uh, a few years in jail, maybe what, four, something like that? Three years. Three years. So uh, he goes to jail for three years. They use 73 agents. They must have spent an enormous amount of money to to bring this case. I'm sure they, they had hoped to catch uh, members of the company that was paying for all this and um, uh, through some errors uh, uh they were unable to do that uh, so they they had a kind of half busted case um but you raise i think the good point that when you're going after economic espionage if the people you're going after are well represented they're going to question whether the thing the technology that was being stolen was really worth stealing or 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 uh, 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 unknown to the world and for the FBI that's a you know making sure that they've crossed that t and dotted that i is a really expensive thing and hard for uh, uh blue collar uh, uh agents to uh get excited about Yes. I mean, so this investigation was somewhat unusual in that you had these car chases across the Midwest and a lot of real action in cornfields. I mean, some of it was comical because everybody was um, driving very slowly. Uh, The Robert and his colleagues were looking for corn and and the FBI, you know, didn't want to they didn't want to blow their cover, so they had to kind of trail It's like a 10-mile-an-hour uh, 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 car chase. It's like OJ all over vast, again. <laughs> right. You have these vast Midwestern expanses where you can see for miles around. Um, so at some point, the FBI starts actually um, surveilling them from the air uh, because there's this risk of blowing their cover on the ground. Um, so they, you know, the FBI has this fleet of um, unmarked uh, or so air like planes that are registered to fake company names, so they start using these planes flying around. Um, they, you know, so you can imagine the cost of the the costs were really jacked up at this point. But there have also been cases where where the FBI staged an international sting operation, for example, um, to so where they had suspects who were in China and they needed to get them in the U.S. in order to arrest them. So they created an elaborate sting to lure them here uh, and then busted them in a motel, you know, with the surveillance video released to the public and and the whole like nine yards. So this is becoming um, the stuff of international intrigue. And of course, was also a major flashpoint in the U.S.-China relationship um, until covid Right. So I, I, what I, I, and I, I don't want to take too much more uh, uh, time, uh, uh, but you dip in and out of what you talked about earlier as the concern of community organizers, uh, which is, um, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, uh, suggestions that this is all just anti-Chinese racism at work. 
Uh, and, you know, that's a, that's a tricky argument because, of course, it plays to very deep American views, but it's also a remarkably convenient argument for the Chinese government, which has used it in the COVID-19 uh, um, and persuaded, I think, the, uh, the WHO that um, uh, unlike Middle East respiratory syndrome, this shouldn't be a Wuhan virus because that would somehow be racist. Uh, um, so there is a, 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 a kind of a dual element to this. Uh, did you come to a conclusion about uh, uh, whether there's really a racism problem uh, in these mm -hmm. investigations? Okay, well, I also think it should not be called the Wuhan virus, just to be clear. But um, yeah, with... do you have a do you have a position on the Lyme virus or the, uh, the Lyme disease? <laughs> those, those, um, those, those poor those poor uh, Connecticut housewives are being uh, yeah uh, all denigrated. Right. <laughs> well, let's go because to go back to the topic of hand, no, I it is. I, it is an issue that's easy for the Chinese government to play up. Um, but on the other hand, there is a real history of ethnicity coming into these investigations unfairly and of people being targeted where, you know, it turned out that the charges were later dropped. Um, you know, the Wen Huli case is is more complicated, but it's still in many people's memories uh, in it, and I think people on both sides would agree that it's botched, that it was botched, and that that the legacy of that case is still shaping, um, is shaping the way people react to investigations now. Um, you know, and I think the problem is, you know, reported on science in China for many years, um, there are, there, you know, there, there were many scientists who were double dipping and taking thousand talents money and not being forthright about it. But there were also many scientists and are who work on um, perfectly legitimate projects, often with the U.S. government's encouragement. And there can be sometimes confusion about that sort of cooperation, that that cooperation is not, um, is not, there's nothing illicit about it. Uh, you know, a man like Xiao Xingxi, the physicist at Temple University, who was arrested um, by the FBI and then later had charges dropped. He was engaged in a in a basic research project that was, you know, above the board cooperation. So there is confusion about those projects. And I think that the suspicion tends to fall on ethnic Chinese researchers much more frequently um, than it does on people like Charles Lieber, the uh, the chair of the former chair of the chemistry department at Harvard, who was who was um, charged with hiding his ties to China. So I have I, I had a very memorable conversation probably ten or fifteen years ago with a ethnic Chinese Australian um, who said that he had an exchange with a government official from China uh, who essentially said, uh, "You may work for the Australian government." But you belong to us. You you have to be loyal to your people. We are your people. I, it was a very ethnic, you might say, racist uh, uh, appeal. But it's a deeply felt view on at least the part of the government, and presumably the, the people they're making that appeal to. I, 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 and so, I, I, how much is the FBI's focus on ethnic Chinese a matter of 
their prejudices and how much is it a matter of the Chinese government's prejudices? Well, this is an argument that it, that the U.S. government has made over over you know decades that we are not the ones doing the racial profiling because the Chinese are racial profiling. The Chinese government is racial profiling first, but it's just not you know it's not an effective tool. It's it's true that the Chinese government has this very expansive view of what's considered the motherland, and that um, you know you see it in the way that. Chinese Americans are treated within China, they are um, much more readily susceptible, you know, susceptible to detention and to arrest than white Americans are. And, but that doesn't change the fact that like the US government should not be engaging in racial profiling. And it's just not an effective tool, furthermore. Um, and not to mention the fact that we need the support of um, the scientific community, if like if we're really going to go after industrial espionage and um, and root out fraud, it would be very helpful to have the support of the, of the community on your side. Uh, and you know, just from the in the long run, looking at um, protecting U.S. innovation and the um, the robustness of the of the U.S. Um, innovation infrastructure. Many of uh, many of our researchers are ethnic Chinese. Uh, we do, you know, we are an attractive place for very talented people. And if um, those people feel like they're not welcome simply because they are, you know, not even Chinese nationals, but in many cases ethnic Chinese, I think that we're sort of shooting ourselves in the foot. So I, I was I was struck by one of the uh, passages in the book where uh, Robert Mo uh, uh, gets all shirty about how he's being questioned about his loyalty to the United States, uh, uh, and it, he's appalled at the same time that he has decided not to become a citizen, uh, um, which uh, you know is a, a, a decision he can make. But it you know it, you would think that if you are committed to the United States, you'd want to become a citizen. Uh, and uh, uh, to say, I can't believe you're treating me differently from uh, uh, other citizens of the United States when you aren't one. You know, there's a, there's a certain amount of double think in that, uh, uh, in that attitude. And I fear that that's the problem here is that, uh, yes, you've got people who are inclined to see racism in questioning of their uh, uh, what they're doing, uh, but who are genuinely torn about uh, where their loyalties lie. Well, I wouldn't take Robert Moore as a, as a good representation of this issue. His case became a window into that issue. Uh, you know, the book is about cases other than his. And he's he's a complicated guy and he you know i did think it it was he he's, i spent a long time communicating with him when he was in prison um emailing back and forth and then i eventually met with him there and he you know i he talked a lot about this kind of feeling that um that he was being targeted unfairly um you know he also told me that he thought there were vultures standing on his shoulders and I included that colorful language because I thought it would give the reader a sense of of who he is. 
Um, but it's also clear in the book that he did steal the seeds. Um, he, you know, he did the things that he was accused of doing. There, there just is, I think, at the end, a bit of ambiguity about whether everything that happened to him um, should have happened the way it, it did. You know, whether that extensive investigation, um, the years in prison, and now he's in an immigration detention facility, which, you know, many of them have been ravaged by COVID and um, people are, his family's um, He's there because they want to. They, they want to. They're going to try to deport uh, him. Deport him. Uh, are right. the Chinese not taking him back? I I would assume that they'll take him back. He's very well connected, but um, but de- deportations have been very slow in the past few years, and the, I would assume have been slowed further by by the outbreak. Yeah, that China is notorious for not taking back their criminals. Uh, uh, but this is this is not a case where they uh, they this is a case where they might be willing to do it. Uh, um, all right, uh, Mara, uh, this has been terrific. Uh, I really enjoy uh, your um, deep dives on uh, Chinese uh, uh, technology. Uh, uh, so I, I commend to our readers your piece in Wired on iFlyTech. Uh, uh, your book uh, is a it's it's a good story. I, you know I'm I'm I, I'm I'm pretty skeptical of the, the community organizers who want to. St- uh, cry racism about this uh, or racial profiling or whatever you want to call it. But uh, it is, uh, it certainly shows that some of these com- uh, Chinese uh, commercial espionage cases turn out to be a lot more complicated when you open them than uh, when you read about them in the newspaper. So, you know, if anything can get me to read The Intercept, uh, you're going there, we'll do it. Uh, uh, So thanks for joining me. Thanks also to um, uh, Matthew Hyman, Gus Hurwitz, and Nick Weaver for joining me. This has been episode 317 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, And uh, I would not uh, uh, be doing uh, uh, my duty uh, if I let uh, episode 317 pass without noting that this is the last one that will be produced and edited by Michael Beaver. He's leaving us. We are brokenhearted. Uh, We're looking for someone to replace him. Uh, If you're interested, send your uh, 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 send an email or a resume to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, also, send your recommendations for speakers and guests, and we'll send you our coveted Cyberlaw Podcast mug. Uh, um, and I guess if we if if we continue to have podcasts that are this long, as long as Joe Rogan's shows, maybe that maybe we'll get a hundred million dollars uh, uh, from Spotify. Uh, uh, so I guess I should. Uh, begin to hedge on my uh, my promise that we would never do that. Uh, uh, please do give uh, leave us ratings on uh, uh, whatever uh, uh, service you get your podcasts from, and join us as we once again uh, next week provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.